Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. Welcome, everyone. Hope we're having a good Friday morning. Another great episode of Tech Talk. We've got three fantastic uh, technologists uh, and uh, agency folks with us today, as always. Uh, first, we're going to talk to Roxana Shershin, CEO of Digital Additive. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, next, we're going to get with uh, KP Reddy, founder and CEO of Shadow Ventures. Hey, thanks for having me. And finally, Chris Weissman, Chief Marketing Officer at TopRight. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Of course. All right, guys. Let's get right into it. Um, so, Roxana, your your world is very much about emails. Um, and, and all of our worlds are really emails these days, but you have made a career of, um, I would call it being a connoisseur of emails. Uh, we're we're going to get into exactly what Digital Additive does, but I want to first start at a high level of why emails are so interesting to you. Okay. Um, and I'm totally stealing connoisseur of emails for my business card after this uh, podcast. <laughs> I mean, I, I gave it away, so it's all yours. Um, what has made me... Um, Actually, really excited and passionate about email is that it's uh, it's perhaps one of the few media channels out there that was really created to be personal from the get go. I mean, the the whole point of email is to drive um, you know conversations and create a dialogue. Um, you know what mail used to do, old fashioned snail mail um, used to do, and email was created to do that, and it's. Uh, such a great tool that is also available not just to, you know, individuals, but also, um, marketers themselves. And it, the trick is really how do you, how do you take advantage of what is a personal communication and, um, use that to drive relationships, um, at a broader, uh, scale with, um, companies and their customers. Did you realize that email had this potential and was this new paradigm upon its inception and you've just been waiting for a way to uh, introduce it into your professional life or, or the, the spark kind of came later as it's inundated everyone? If I, if I had had the foresight, I would be a lot richer right now because I would have created one of the platforms that we are working off of. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think with anything at this point, um, it's being... Um, I came out of direct mail, actually, originally, and then worked my way into television and um, just love the idea of having uh, these personal connections with people, but yet still have it measurable. And I'm super geeky. So I love email because there's so much measurement available to it that helps understand like how how well did we do in making something um, communicated to a customer. But Oh no, I'm totally opportunistic in terms of how I landed into this field. Um, and I'm just lucky that landed into a field that I, I really enjoy, um, working in. Well, sorry. So we, we've been dancing around what digital additive <laughs> actually does. So let's, let's get the elevator pitch. Sure. So the elevator pitch is, um, we are, well, we've been talking that we're obviously an email agency, but what our focus is, is in how we marry technology, data, and creative to really uh, deliver on this promise of one-to-one. What email was intended to do from the from the beginning, create a, a relationship, have a communication between two individuals um, or multiple individuals, depending on how you use CCs. <laughs> uh, but um, how do we work with large companies who have amassed a lot of data really about their customers and help them 
take that data and all the all their great products and services and help them package that in a way that delivers a relevant and um and critical message for those customers and do that at scale. So we work with really large companies who have all that data and find ways in how we can craft emails that when the customer receives it, it's not just, oh, it's another email blast of what's on sale today, but it's really delivering to me what is on sale, but that actually means something. So if I've been browsing Let's say I'm on Home Depot's site and I'm browsing drills. Don't tell me about refrigerators that are on sale. Make sure you're telling me when the drills are on sale and make, and making sure that that is as relevant as possible. So we, all, all of us live in a day and age where we are completely bombarded by emails to the point where it can really see like, seem like the junk mail flyers that we throw out mm-hmm. and we wonder why are people spending money on this? And so it seems to me like your thesis is that there, there is probably so many organizations doing it poorly that to stand out and do it in an impactful manner um, is actually not – maybe it's not as heavy as, as a lift as we think. Yeah, you just have to be real intentional about it. Mm-hmm. I mean um, the thing is email is also cheap as heck. So it's an – I liken it to like a slot machine. It's really easy to pull that lever and send email and do it in mass and send a bunch of stuff, like you said, that resembles a junk flyer. Um, that's real easy to do. And that's the problem because it's cheaper than at least in direct mail. There was an expense to sending all those flyers, right? right? Email, there really isn't that much of an expense. We're talking pennies on the dollar. Um, so. It, it, you have to be intentional about it. And especially because it's cheap, you have to really think through um, what your customer wants and put your customer first. It forces companies to think about their customer as individuals and what what they want, as opposed to thinking of it as as a slot machine for, for revenue to be brought in by just doing an email blast. So it requires that intentionality. Why, why do you think that you and your team are so much better at these organizations that you work with of understanding how to be intentional? Why is this something that marketing departments within you know your large com- uh, customers have not been able to solve themselves? Well, we would, we'd like to say we are, a lot of them have that idea. They want to do it. It's not like there's this desire to not do it. Um, it's just, it's, it's technologically difficult. It, a lot of, uh, I, I think we use the term analysis paralysis quite often. There's just so much data that is collected and it's often in a variety of systems that it's really hard to extract what to act on mm-hmm. and how to pull it in and how to transform it. There's a lot of work there involved. So what we do is we partner with them to really take their idea because often it's not, we're not coming to them with this new idea. Hey, talk to your customers like individuals. They already want to do that. It's how to do it that becomes sort of the blocker. And what we do is we'll come in and help figure out not just what they want to do, but all the pieces that they might have available to them that they don't even realize come into play and help map out how to marry that together, bring it into, um, we're actually a Salesforce um, uh, partner agency, and we bring it into that platform and transform it and action on it um, using that technology. So I'm, I'm curious if you can share what are some of those 
I don't know whether it's insights or capabilities that maybe they have, but um, are, are aren't able to fully harness that you guys help them understand better. Um, a lot of it. This is it's you'll probably get a really good sense here <laughs> um, that we're the really geeky side of email. So it is um, it a good example. Let me. Um, I'll use one of our clients' um, example. Okay. Um, and, uh, so we do a lot of work with the Home Depot. You may have heard of them. Sure have. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we've done work with them for a number of years. And so one of their ideas is, you know, they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of SKUs, hundreds of thousands of SKUs and, and people browsing their site all the time. And one of their relevant ideas that they wanted to be able to deliver to their customers is notify them when there is a price decrease for product that they've recently engaged with. Great idea. But there isn't like this database already at the ready that says these are all our price drops for the day and what individual person looked at those, you know, products. So trying to understand like what all those data elements that were needed in order to make that email happen is where we came in and said, okay, well, we already have all the prices for all the SKUs plumbing into this system every day. So let's take a snapshot of yesterday's file, compare it to today's file, do a lot of business rule logic against it to make sure that those price decreases are valid. And then we um, mapped it out and said, all right, well, then who has all of the SKUs mapped to the individuals who browse those products? We then transform the data, push it to them. They're able to marry it at their business rules, like how recently would they have had to browse it? They do the mashup. They send it back to us. We then transform it one more time against another layer of business rules and then send out the email. But mapping all of those steps out and fi- uncovering where all those elements reside is hard because it's not like they all reside magically in one place. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great real life example and that's an enormous amount of precision. And what, what I wonder is, okay, when you think about all of the people who Home Depot has information for, and you think of, again, all the SKUs they have, and you think about, you know, your, um, really what seems to be your charge as a company, which is to be intentional by email. How is it even possible? I mean, clearly it is because you're doing it, but how is it even possible to get that intentional with so many people with such particular, um, you know, one or two SKUs? I mean, I guess that, that's the that's secret the whole, sauce, right? But well. like, it's, it's somewhat incredible that you're, you're able to actually execute on that. Yes. And that, and that's where I think that's where the value we bring in is that it's so, it's that analysis paralysis. It sounds like such a huge lift that it's easy to just say, well, you know what? Just send all the price decreases. <laughs> <laughs> right. And let the customer figure out which one's relevant to them. Um, and uh, honestly, it, it sounds real complicated, but once you break it down, and we've been doing this now for seven years, um, once we're able to break it down, we're able, that whole process that I just mapped out, it took us six months to map it. So I will say, it's not like it happened in one week whiteboarding session. Yeah. Took us six months to hap, um, to map it out, but all of that data work happens in the matter of three to four hours. So the price decrease happened the last night, and that email is going out by 1 p.m. today. So, um, and it happens every single day, like clockwork. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, there isn't really a secret sauce, honestly. It's just really understanding the business, understanding what the customer, um, you know, what it would be relevant to the customer to see. And then, um, and figuring out where all, this is a, 
well, we're near Halloween. I'll use this uh, analogy where all the bodies lie, like where all those data opportunities lie and uncovering the ones that aren't as obvious. That's the trick is finding the places where it's not readily apparent that it's there. But how do you how are you creative in finding the solutions that will get us to where we need to be? So like that, you know, the price decrease, there wasn't this readily available mm-hmm. file. Um, but just even trying to creatively figure out how do we craft that? How do we create that file in a way that's um, stable and accurate? Okay, so I'm going to give you another one for your business card. So, so you you got it. Sounds you guys are like data detectives, right? Yeah, I mean, you. It, yeah. So you've got large company with massive treasure trove of data, and, and the the easy part would seem to be collecting all that data. The hard part is figuring out what to actually do with it, mm-hmm. and. There are many different actions that can come from that data, and so you are one piece of that. You're using all that data to help them figure out, this is how you use the data for emails, okay? You want to go use the data for other purposes, that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's other people, whether it's internal or external, but specifically on how to better target via email, we're going to take this data and tell you things um, that you either didn't or couldn't know yourself and will actually be able to execute on something that would have probably taken you a, a while if you could have done it at all. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, and it starts with initially, again, it, it, we really focus on what's a customer centric um, value add from an email perspective. You know, what is it that the customer wants to see and then back into how can we deliver on that promise um, or that, you know, that request from the customer perspective. But yeah, no, absolutely. Data detectiving, and then there's another layer of even more geekiness of like, then how do you, you know, how do you build an email itself mm-hmm. to also be that hyper personalized, right? So it's one thing to know that you want to see a drill, but then how do you make that happen real fast and at scale to show that specific drill in the email and the pricing that's relevant to that store? So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's fun. <laughs> So, well, so geeky and it's so fun. Well, that look, you're, you, it's, you, you have to have passion, right? I think yeah. that we, we've all been to cocktail parties with people that on the surface might do something that doesn't seem terribly interesting in an unsexy industry, but their passion and enthusiasm for it makes us passionate and enthusiastic as well. That, um, the, the expertise and the care is infectious. And well, clearly that's why you're running this company, right? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, one, one, one thing that I'm thinking about is that email has taken the place of, uh, physical mail in mm-hmm. our lives, right? In terms of how we communicate. Is, is, are there other forms of communication that you're looking at to, I don't know about diversify or hedge or just, you know, we, we live in a world that changes so quickly technology that, you know, does the team focus on other forms of communication that, not might not necessarily replace email, but serve as a complement to help um, you know your clients get in the door even more. Oh, absolutely! And um, ultimately, is it is about one to one. So we are always looking at other channels that are also in that one to one sphere. So SMS and text, but that one's even trickier because that to me is a huge. I don't intrusion sounds real strong of a word, but um, from a marketing perspective, I don't think it is that. <laughs> I mean, I think it is an intrusion. So um, it can be. So we look at using SMS for transactional. Like if you're buy mm-hmm. online, pick up in store, 
SMS, you know, text messaging for that purpose to let you know when something's available in store is a totally viable use case for, um, for text messaging. And we do a lot of transactional, um, work as well. That's what they call anything where you've made a purchase or are engaging with the, um, with the brand. And there's a very specific expectation that the brand is going to respond and respond very quickly. Um, so text messaging, in-app messaging. I know we all have like those notifications that we get for the apps that we um, subscribe to or have downloaded. So we also work on those to make those as relevant as possible, not just generic. But those are new. Um, the, the in-app messaging in particular, how to use that in an effective manner is um, fairly new. But we're all we're always looking um, at other ways to craft that one-to-one experience. So, I mean, text text is an interesting one. I, I wonder if you think there's any demographic analysis behind it because I have noticed that, and I and I've always been in sales of some sort. Um, and ten years ago, total faux pas, even necessarily to try and like prospect with someone on their cell phone. It was just, I mean, you know. You don't do that. And now I think you can probably divide into age groups, but you know, I, I can't, I can't tell you how much, you know, work, um, and you know, kind of, of, of the sales process actually gets done over text with some people. They're very open to it. Mm-hmm. And, and it can be limit, limiting in the type of message you're able to get across, but it, it, I really have found that it has blossomed in the past decade, but probably only for certain groups. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, but I do think it's like with anything at as much as it has blossomed with certain groups, even that's expanding. Yeah. So, um, you know, folks would have said, Oh, it's just really a millennial channel. Probably even a few years ago, I think it's becoming less and less specific to that. Just as even, but on the flip side, also people used to say about five years ago, similarly, Oh, also the millennial and younger generations are not even going to engage in email. And we have found that to not be the case. So every, every channel has had, um, sort of their own adoption curve, if you will. So, uh, for text messaging, I do think you're right there. The earlier adopters tend to be more demographically driven, but, um, but we're finding, especially with the types of messaging that we're use casing off of, that it's less and less of a demographic. If you're buying online and picking up in store, I know I'm going to harper on that use case because I love that use case. Um, I don't think that has anything to do with the age group. In fact, if I can know that it's available for right. pickup at the Carter, st- my, you know, the kids clothes I just ordered are available at that Carter store right now. It would be great to have that available to me via text. I mean, look, I, I think it, 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 at the end of the day, it depends on the type of person and what sort of use mm-hmm. they're looking for. My, uh, my wife's grandfather is 90 and he is, and okay. I, you know, he uses his iPhone you know, probably more than we do. Um, right. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it works for some people yeah. and it doesn't necessarily Absolutely. matter what age group you're in. Yeah. Although I do think, and I, I am an older millennial. Um, I have found that I think those that are maybe six or seven years younger than me and that sort of younger half of millennials, I, I feel to a detriment do tend to rely a little bit too much on the text communication when it's like, you know, we could have just picked up the phone and com- accomplished this in 60 seconds if oh, we yeah. wanted to. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it is a compelling um, tool for communication that's clearly not going anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's funny. Even, you know, one of the things that uh, always amazes me is how much uh, transpires on things that were used to be like 
handwritten notes or um, or phone calls, like even the hiring process, how much of that is even done via text? Right. <laughs> Although I think that's why I think that's why handwritten items are so impactful yeah. because it's so rare. Like you send someone a FedEx of just you know a, a single page handwritten note. I mean, it's like a. It, you know, it's like Benjamin Franklin took out his old, you know, like quill pen in the mm-hmm. 1700s and wrote you a personalized note. It's, it's in, in, insanely impactful, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, cause it's so, it's so personal, right? That's right. where everything is. It's impactful when it's so personal. Yeah. No, I'm a big fan of handwritten thank you notes. In fact, I was writing them this morning. <laughs> <laughs> but of course you, you cannot do that at scale. That is not no. a marketing strategy. No. <laughs> so, so, so let's talk uh, a little bit more about digital additives. So you, you landed on the Inc. 5000 last year. Um, and I always wonder when I look at well, organizations that have received awards, like best places to work in Inc. 5000, what, what do you think you're doing right? Other than the fact that you have a compelling product that companies are paying for. Like, yes, that of course, accounts for revenue growth, but why is, what, what is the intangible behind why your organization is thriving? Honestly, it's our people. I mean, I, I cannot say enough great things about the, we're about 47 folks at Digital Additive and a number of us, a number of the team members have been with us for five of our seven years, which is incredible. And, um, and having that, um, that longevity, with that passion and having people grow with us has been a big part of that success. Um, I don't think you can be successful if you're, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of companies who do this, but be as successful in maintaining that level of expertise and passion if you're churning through folks. So developing a culture and, um, and a focus on, you know, everyone who's part of our team is really important to us. So that's actually what um, we spend a lot of time and energy against is making sure, you know, we, you know, have great, we hire real slow, <laughs> but in finding the right people to join us and to grow with us over, over time and um, knock on wood that, that, that continues, but it's definitely the folks that are on the team that make it all possible. Uh, well, it, it would seem that um, for, well, for any organization, it should be, but certainly for one um, at, at your stage that, that, that hiring has to be intentional, just like mm, your, your intentional in your yeah. messaging and, yeah. you know, with your clients. It's the hardest thing right now too. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's chat about that a little bit. So I remember when you and I first talked, you know, you, you are not, uh, remind me, you're from Florida or New yes. York? No, I'm from Miami. From actually, Miami. Okay. Of all things. And, which is like New York in Florida. <laughs> right. It's, it's, uh, you know, like you go, you go far south enough and it just sort of reverses itself. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we, and, and I'm from Atlanta originally, but did not think that I would end up here and you expressed a similar sentiment. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious the role that you think Atlanta and, and its talent has played, um, in the growth and future of digital additive. That's a great question. Um, so I will say that my, um, my unpublished motto for the, for the city of Atlanta is the city that grows on you. Uh, because honestly, like when we um, first met, I knew for certain I was going to be in Atlanta for two or three years and then go to New York because that's where I thought I was supposed to be. And that was back in 91. So let's just say that that never happened. <laughs> um, and it has played a huge role. I don't, I mean, I think Atlanta is such a great, um, has provided such a great foundation where it's a small enough community, especially within digital marketing, um, that it's small enough where Everyone knows each other, but the, that there is something truthful about Southern hospitality. 
I don't necessarily feel this um, competitive component to everyone that sits in that circle. Um, in fact, uh, you know, some of the folks who have done the most help in when we were first starting the agency and growing it are folks who are also doing very similar things to what we're doing. Uh, so having those, um, having that camaraderie and support system was, was a major, um, influence on, on, uh, founding the agency. And even the, our, our, our first few clients are all folks who we had worked with in the past as well. So there's this real sense of community and relationship that is valued here in Atlanta more so than I think other places, to be honest with you. Um, and even a lot of our employees, are, probably more than half of them are referrals, either from employees or clients or friends of friends. Um, so, yeah, the sense of community, I think, is real unique here and um, is definitely a part of that success. All right, Metro Chamber, if you're listening, new motto, te- test, test it out, the city that grows on you. Yeah, I'm not sure that's going to, that is not going to focus group well, but, but it's like the antithesis of San Francisco. You fall in love with that city and the longer you're there, everyone I know who's been there for a while is like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Um, whereas the longer I was here, I was like, I love this city. I can, I could see myself doing this more. And I, I have now, you know, got married, have kids here. And I'm so happy that that's, this is where my kids will have their childhood memory. Well, and, and look, I, I, we, you, you know, I'm on the same page as you are. I, I didn't think I would stay here either, but, but it really is fantastic. Um, for all the reasons that you said and more. And it, it, it does grow on you. Um, it's grown on my Northeastern wife who had, you know, unfair, uh, conceptions of what the South was. Um, but it, it's, it's a similar story I've heard from, from many people. And, you know, look, uh, I don't think the Metro Chamber is going to adopt that marketing strategy anytime soon, but it is better to have a long-term dedicated population than, you know, you're attracted to this shiny thing that mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, loses its luster. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, if someone listening wants to learn more about digital additive, how do they find you? Uh, well, they can find us on the World Wide Web. Oh, wow. I really? know. Yeah. Uh, digitaladditive.com. But also, um, anyone who wants to reach out to me directly, feel free to do so. It's um, Roxana. This is just – actually, I do have an email address that doesn't have my last name. So we'll use that. <laughs> Roxana. That's R-O-X-A-N-A at digitaladditive.com. Great. Roxana, thanks for joining. Thank you. Okay. KP with Shadow Ventures. How are we today? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. So b- before we get into the business stuff, we have to address your taste in music because I <laughs> often see you and in your LinkedIn picture as well with a Metallica t-shirt on. And yeah. as a metalhead myself, <laughs> I think it is fantastic that you go around as a business person promoting awesome music. So let, let's back up a little bit and talk about mu- your musical taste. Yeah, it's actually interesting. You know, Gen X, right? So fill in the blank of all the stuff I'm pretty cliche Gen Xer. So uh, it's actually funny, you know, I do probably now it's down to about 50 speaking gigs a year. Um, and everybody expects me to show up with the Metallica shirt on <laughs> every time. So uh, it's it's kind of like, no, I only actually have two and I don't wear them every day. Um, so, so you mean they're not sponsoring you? No, <laughs> probably the opposite. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, and, and, and another interesting thing, if you go to your LinkedIn and, you know, before we started this show, I asked how you want me to introduce you. And, and the question is very relevant with you because you have a lot of stuff on there. And of course, most relevantly right now, you're associated with Shadow Ventures, which I want to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have been a part of 
many, many, um, you know, early stage technology companies, um, you know, uh, throughout the past decade or two. And so let's first talk about Shadow Ventures, mm-hmm. but then I want to get into the past a little bit and how you got here. Yeah. Um, so Shadow Ventures, it's pretty straightforward. We're a venture capital firm. Uh, we invest seed stage, half a million to a million and a half. Um, they have to be real technology companies, not made up technology <laughs> companies. So food delivery apps are not technology companies. Um, so we actually invest in really hard stuff. Um, we're mostly based here in Atlanta, although we only have one portfolio company here in Atlanta. Uh, we have a portfolio in Scotland, New York, Austin, San Francisco, um, doing a bunch in Tokyo right now. So m- I think we've been trying to schedule this podcast for maybe six months. Um, part of that's just I'm usually only here Fridays. Um, so you, you made a statement, um, a little bit, and, and I'm sure some of it was humorous, but I know there's a little bit of truth behind it. You said we invest in real technology companies, yes. not, you know, quote unquote food delivery apps. And, um, you are, anyone who has seen you speak knows that you are very outspoken and blunt. Um, and th- that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here because yeah. I know you'd be a good conversation, but I, I want to get your opinion to drill down on what exactly you mean by that. Is that you are focused on certain types of technology? Or you feel like there are technology companies that are maybe overvalued, invested in too early, that don't deserve the dollars? I, I want to hear it. Yeah, so uh, in order to invest in technology, you have to know technology. We have a full-time tech team. We have a CTO that's a, a partner in our firm. Um, we want to see actual transformative technology, technology that's hard. It can't be outsourced to India. So usually one of our big filters is if you're outsourcing your tech, you've just outsourced your business. So if you can outsource it, then it's probably not a tech company. Um, one of the things we've done really well, startups always take long. It's, it's never a linear path to growth. Um, if you do not have defensible technology, then someone that can hire a couple of smarter people and a couple of, and a couple million bucks more will beat you in the long run. So it's all about building highly defensible technology was meant to look like magic. Once it stops looking like magic, it's not technology. <laughs> um, how how do you find that your process for filtering those organizations has developed throughout the years? Um, so actually, part of um, what we've done, which is pretty interesting, we think venture capital has been broken for a while. Um, it's actually not engaging in a way. It's starting to look like higher risk private equity. If you look at Atlanta, um, we think we're the only VC here. There's really a bunch of firms that place money and invest later stage when all the risk is out of the equation. We call that private equity, not venture capital. Um, and part of that risk quotient has been not having the right teams. Like you have to look at code. You have to know what you're looking at. You have to be better at the tech sometimes than the founders are to really w- understand what's going on. And, you know, part of our model has been really to focus on those technologists and focus on the tech and augment and be part of their team. Uh, how, how are you finding these people? So back to our process, mm-hmm. um, it was heavily dependent on me, um, which is not scalable. So we've actually, we have actually built our own AI engine that does risk analysis, sentiment analysis, exit, exit probability analysis. So we've taken a, like my 28 years of experience investing and building companies. Um, we've actually started porting that to an AI engine. Because we think VC hasn't been innovated. It's funny you have VCs that invest in tech and still use Outlook. So, um, you know, that's their primary, um, technology they're using. So 
we've really tried to innovate that. So we do some really cool stuff around customer sentiment analysis, recruitment sentiment analysis, exit sentiments, um, predicting who the exit possibilities will be, not just based on the startup's path and how they're moving, but also the potential acquirers. Um, if you have a, uh, if one of your acquirers or potential liquidity events is to a large company that has not made an acquisition in a year and their internal growth rate is actually exceeding what an acquisition would look like, mm-hmm. why the hell would they in- acquire you? So does this technology normally come in the vetting process before you bring someone in to talk or you've got a charismatic founder come in, comes in, they give you the proverbial deck and you are verifying that, well, okay, this, this seems interesting, but what are, what's the data behind it? Yeah. So generally the charismatic founder will not get anywhere with us because they're generally full of shit. So we vet those people pretty well. We ask them like, so when's the last time you've written code? If you haven't written code, you're not in technology, get, get out basically. Uh, we run an incubator program. It's a global incubator. So we have companies from Singapore, New Zealand, all over the world in it. Um, and we run that all virtually using technology. Um, let me speak slowly. So we don't think space is part of incubation. We think talent and connections is really the incubation process. I don't care where you are. Um, and if we're not leveraging technology, then, you know, what are we doing? I'm pretty much the only one on my team that is on planes constantly, and that's just kind of the nature of the leadership position I'm in. But mm-hmm. um, we run everything virtually. We have about a 28% acceptance rate in our incubator. And in order to get in, we want to know that, you ha- that you're solving a problem worth solving. Um, I don't think we're all complaining about getting pizza on time 10 years ago. All of a sudden, apparently, it's really important that we get food delivered. We don't think that's a real problem unless it was a food desert scenario. Um, but generally speaking, um, we want to know, one, are they solving a problem that's worth solving? Do they have a solution that has the potentiality of being defensible? You know, the reality is almost every AI, every deck we see this as AI on it, there's no AI, right? It has the potentiality of applying AI principles to the technology. With that said, sometimes AI is not the answer. Um, so we want to see that, you know, most of these companies haven't had enough capital to build any real tech. And so therefore they can't, they don't have anything defensible just yet, but we want to see potentiality. We accept them in our incubator, our labs program based on that. And then once they're in, um, we train them, we teach them. We have about a 28% acceptance rate. We have about a 28%, um, we kick them out rate. Okay. If you don't do the work, we're sitting here working. If you're not going to do the work and do the important work, then we kick you out. Is the incubator you're referring to the Combine, which I know you've been no, involved in No, Combine is one of our companies. We've sold that off. Got it. Okay. Um, so Shadow Ventures is your focus, but you have a long history of being involved um, with early stage companies and building them yourself. So what do you think it is about your personality that draws you to this sort of work? Um, actually wanting to solve problems. Uh, create impact. You know, I think that that's the big thing is there's um, Shark Tank is dumb and anybody watching it is watching the wrong thing and spending their time on the wrong things, you know, because it's all about real entrepreneurs are always trying to really solve some problem and, you know, some problem that someone's told them that is unsolvable. Um, so I always joke around the best entrepreneurs are engineers because that's what we do. But, um, but I think the track record has been, you know, first company when I was 19 took my second one public when I was 26 has always been, if you solve problems, 
faster, better, and more creative way than anyone else on the planet, you will win every time. Okay, well, so solving problems is part of it, but there has to be some inherent piece of you that enjoys the whether it's risk, whether it's never having the same sort of day. Yeah, right? there's there, there's there's something internal there that's driving that as well, besides just solving a big problem. Yeah, I mean, I think working for people is terrible. I mean, it, it's indentured servitude at some level, right? The the idea that we're hooked on. Oh, I've got to have benefits. You know, go make a bunch of money and you don't worry about benefits, you know. And I think um, all of us wake up every morning with about two seconds of free will. And then we remember we have to pay our mortgage and we have to pay our alimony or we have to pay whatever's in our, our life. And after that, by that third second, our free will has been given away. But of course, okay, so as I don't disagree with that. Right. But not everyone has that let's call it risk appetite, right? Yeah. Some people would buckle under the weight of that type of a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So while that works for you, the world has to have, we, we, we can't have a bunch of yous, right? Because wouldn't, who would work, who, who would work for your companies? Well, right? we jo- we, so the, the running joke in our office is um, there's people in the matrix and there's people outside of the matrix, right? <laughs> so um, we believe we're outside of the matrix. Yeah. But I mean, we're building, I mean, uh, I get my team doesn't like me saying this, but we're building an army, right? So part of our our methodology of everything we do, everyone on my team, their mission in five years is to run their own fund, right? So I'm build I'm not building a team to just do the grunt work. It's a team that's actually going to run their own fund, and I'm building venture capitalists. When you look at our entrepreneurs that we're investing in, when they choose to move to the side of I'm done building companies, I'm ready to be an investor, come join our firm. So this virtuous cycle we're creating is. This idea that, you know, don't you want to be a VC, but here's what it's going to take. It might be a 20-year path. Go show me what you got, and then you can come to the firm. Well, and, and, and whether it's in your industry or another, that really is the best type of leadership because what you're doing is not only are you giving back and truly developing someone, but selfishly as well. You, they're, they're, I mean, look, there's an altruistic side to this and there's a selfish side to this because as those people develop in their careers, you know, that's just more connections and more relationships for your own business as well. Um, there's nothing altruistic about what we do. Um, we spot talent that is high potential that we be, we believe whether it's because of the current construct of gender bias, race bias, whatever, we hire very talented people, like hyper talented. Mm-hmm. And they're there to produce. They're there to produce, and they're there to deliver uh, numbers. And I think that's how we look at our entrepreneurs. I would say there's people view some of the things because of my hiring decisions, view things as being altruistic. And I think it's terrible that if I hire an Af- a young African American woman, people are like, "Oh, KP, so nice. He's giving back." I'm like, "No, she's actually fucking amazing, and she's here as much to deliver." And you know. The fact that everybody looks at this bias like, oh, he's doing great work by hiring this person. Like, that's not what happened. Like, I'm hiring someone that's amazing. Well, I don't mean altruism in that you are doing someone a favor that doesn't deserve it or that's a detriment. I mean it in that yeah. you are actually taking an interest in someone who has done the work to get in the door yeah. and deserves to be developed. Absolutely. They've earned, I mean, they've earned it. And I think that's one of the things in corporate America and kind of people that are living in the matrix, um, they 90% of the people out there don't deliver. Bottom line, right? They they show up, they do the work, they don't deliver. Um, and 
the few that do either may get frustrated and stuck in that corporate engine and the few that don't pop out. So if, if that's part of your calculus, have you found that your work at Shadow Ventures when I say is easy, I don't mean that there's not a lot of hard work to put this together, mm-hmm. but if your thesis is correct, that there's a lot of companies out there that don't deserve to get funded, that there's a lot of funders out there that shouldn't be investing in some of these companies, is it easy to stand out from the pack? Yes. We're on fund three. We're killing every quartile. Period. I mean, then, then it, look, whatever I say, whatever hyperbole comes out of my mouth, mm-hmm. whatever adjectives I shouldn't be using that I use, um, Look at the bank account. We're crushing it. Yeah. Um, I, you you have been in Atlanta for a long time. Unfortunately. <laughs> well, so uh, let let let's talk about that. Right. I, I don't I don't know if you say that with uh, with tongue and cheek or realistically, but I am curious about your take on what what Atlanta's done in technology in the past thirty years and where we're good and where we need some help. Yeah. I mean, I think <clears throat> we need to stop talking about ourselves. I mean, I, I have the good fortune of. Spending time, you know, I grew up in Stone Mountain, um, went to Georgia Tech, so I'm an Atlanta kid, so to speak. Um, we did this big annual summit, and um, I had our friend, the lieutenant governor, come and speak. And, you know, last minute I was asked to do his introduction instead of our MC doing the introduction. And uh, so totally unprepared, I said, you know, here's the problem. I'm the biggest fan of Georgia and Atlanta, and I'm also the biggest critic, um, but at least it produced me. So um, we look at it and we say, you know, Everybody needs to get to work. And some of the things that people find very comfortable about Atlanta is the biggest thing that holds us back. Um, if you exit your company in Manhattan for $25 million, the only lifestyle change that occurs is that walk-up that you rented is now a walk-up that you own. But the next day, you're back at work. And there's a little bit of the comfort here that breeds mediocrity. In a, in a major way, you know, because it's comfortable. Guess what? You don't always get to get to your kid's soccer game on time. Sorry. Um, that's just not how that works. Um, hopefully you get to most times, but not all the time. Um, and that's one of the challenges. You know, I think if you live in a situation where you can be comfortable, which is what a lot of people describe Atlanta as, comfortable, um, quality of life, um, that's actually code that says we're never going to swing for the fences do you think that uh, so i'm wondering if you think that any of that has changed a little bit in maybe the past 15 years because we have so many transplants from other regions of the country that are used to working differently and thinking differently and have um maybe don't get lulled into that absolutely that's why they come here that's why they come here right so, so, because so, they're done right they hate san francisco they hate manhattan i have investment banking friends Mm-hmm. That basically, like, I was tired of the grind in New York. Atlanta's great, right? I mean, which is fine. That's great to attract people from other markets and all that. But they're not coming here to make more, do more, make an impact. They're coming here because they're burned out on places that are of high impact. Well, so d- isn't that partially a, an opportunity for those who can be and want to be high impact to stand out? No. How not? Because there's, we don't have the platform, right? If I walk, I'm, I had a great lunch this week with a serial investor here in Atlanta. I'm like, give me $5 million. And he's like, well, you know, let's talk. I was like, this is the problem. I go have that conversation in Hong Kong. I get $5 million. That's how that works. We, we play small ball because people come here. I mean, there's also a question too. If you are the top technologist in the world, 
why are you in Atlanta? You want to go play and compete on a field where other top technologists exist. If you were the top VC in the world, why are you going to focus on Atlanta and be the big, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, big fish, small pond kind of thing, Mm -hmm. which is fine. I mean, well, that, that begs the question, what are you still doing here? Uh, my kids are here. That's why I'm only here on Fridays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we, you know, our third fund, we have zero investors from Atlanta. We've not talked to a single investor in Atlanta for our fund because it's been an absolute waste of time. How does that ever change? Because, I mean, that really it is one of the problems. It's not a problem. How's it not Everybody's a problem? content with the quality of life. If you want this place to change, right, if you want to, things need to be expensive. Right, you should not be able to buy a house for under a million dollars in Metro Atlanta, and then you will attract the right people. It's too comfortable. Everybody can make their mortgages way too easy. I think uh, I think we've just found the antithesis of the uh, the Metro Atlanta pitch, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Metro Chamber pitch. Excuse me. They probably don't take you to those uh, corporate relocation pitch meetings, do they? No, it's it's <laughs> tough. I was telling I was telling this investor today. I was like, I'm friends with all you know all the powers that be. I'm friends with, and I'm. I'm a difficult friend to have um, because I'm rarely wrong. Rarely wrong. A man who knows himself. Yeah. <laughs> um, a, a lot of the technology that you invest in is associated with commercial real estate, um, whether it's architecture and engineering technology, property management, whatever right. whatever it might be. Um, this is one of the industries that has, I think, taken the longest to truly be disrupted when we look at a lot of the other mm-hmm. major industries in this country. I have my own theory about that being in commercial real estate, but I'm curious as to why you think it is just now um, really you hear so much more about CRE technology than we have in the past decade. Yeah, and to be clear, as a firm, we're not focused. We have Fund 1, 2, and 3 have mm-hmm. all been focused on construction tech and property tech. Um, we'll be launching our healthcare tech, fintech. Um, so we're, we're starting to explore, um, and evaluate other markets, um, mostly focused on leadership. You know, my background has been innovating in telecom and real estate tech and construction technology. Um, so I was kind of the guinea pig for the firm. Um, as I start adding partners in other markets, we will start adding other categories of, of expertise and, and investing. Um, the bottom line is, the industry's cheap. It's low margin. Um, it's backwards. You know, a lot of, if you look at, you have to look at history and you have to look at lineage and where people come from. Um, a lot of people go into commercial real estate because they were born into commercial real estate. Um, it is not a, the majority of people creating wealth in real estate and commercial real estate, it's highly inherited. It's highly driven. The mass majority are driven by my father and my grandfather, my great grandfather. Um, if you spend time in New York, it's very, very clear, right? Um, everybody was born on third. So if you look at that dynamic, there's no incentive to do better. There's no incentive. It's just fine. Everything is fine. And when you view investing in technology, it's viewed as money out the door versus um, actual getting an ROI. Mm-hmm. So the real shift we've seen, we think there's a couple of things that are happening. One, we have a labor crisis. Um, if you talk to any commercial real estate person, hiring property managers, retaining them, it's very, very difficult. Uh, so you have massive, massive turnover. If you look at construction, um, nobody knows what a hammer looks like anymore, much less is willing to swing a hammer. Um, so you have a talent pool that's just zero interested in trades and all that. So you have, you see, so you have one, one part of the perfect storm is the talent shortage. Secondly, the technology's gotten cheap. Uh, when I was deploying technology on a job site, 
22 years ago, geez, 22 years ago, I was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to run sensor controls, to run systems on a job site, to manage it. All that can be done with an iPad and a hundred bucks these days, right? So the technologies come way, way down, which is important to a, to a market that's low margin. Mm-hmm. You can't sell high end technology, expensive technology into an industry that has really low margin, right? It's a, it's a mismatch of, 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 of how it works. Three, you have a generational shift. The great grandkid of whoever that's taking over the family business uh, enjoys the spoils of the family business in terms of money and being in the right country clubs, but is generally pretty bored and wants to do something different, does not want to um, do things the same way grandpa grandpa did it. We, we've actually, I've, I've had some CEOs, for, and think about it, if you're 40-something years old, you started your job having an email address, mm-hmm. right? You lived in, there are there were no good old days. You were you had to accept the good old days from dad that I was going to look at a three-ring binder and do analysis, <laughs> right? Um, so what you're seeing is those people are now in positions of leadership. And I had one CEO of a $12 billion company tell me, I get better data from my kids' middle school then I get on my business and I get it all on my iPad. <laughs> right. So that's, that's damning. Right. So you start uh. seeing the, the generational trend saying, this is nuts. Like I'm running a multi-billion dollar enterprise and I have people showing up to my office with three ring binders. This is nuts. Uh, and actually much of what they call categorizes data is actually opinion. And so why are we not gathering that data real time from real sources? Uh, so I think that the third leg of the perfect storm has been the generational shift. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, it, it obviously presents a ton of opportunity in a massive industry. Um, one of the, and I, and I think that this, this opinion probably fits somewhere in between one or two of, of yours. Certainly the generational shift is that traditionally I think you've had a lot of people, um, in commercial real estate who will, of course, either have inherited it or they're just not the type of people that think outside of a tangible product. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you can sometimes divide the world into people who see things in tangible terms and those who are comfortable with what they might not be able to see and touch right in front of them. And a lot of people, I think, of former generations in real estate have been those who are very comfortable with that literal steel building right mm-hmm. in front of them, yeah. as opposed to a new generation that is more open to technology, marrying it with that tangible product. Yeah. I mean, that, that's part of it, right? They're, the lack of imagination. Is what you just categorized, but I yeah. think, and I think that's also why you see when you see the lack of diversity in commercial real estate. You know, you get out of college, you have to go two years without making a, a dime. You know, so you can build your book and all that stuff. That's very hard for like first generation college grad to go do. So inherently, there's bias towards people that already have wealth and can take the two years to quote unquote build a book, right? Build build a book for their future. Um, so that's, you know, that's a good reason why you, you tend to see like the lack of diversity. Uh, that, that, that is a very good point. Um, and it's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's also, I mean, it's the same sort of rationale as people who can take on t- a painted internships, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have this amazing opportunity at a wonderful company they get upon your resume and you can take the three month hit in the summer because you have something to fall back upon. Yeah. It's interesting. We, we did an experiment this summer. We had summer interns, all college students. Uh, we paid them all 15 to 20 bucks an hour and everybody's like, well, why would you, I'm like, we pay people because they had, there's a goal. There's an expectation of they do work for us and they have to deliver. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to have an unpaid. I mean, it's, 
It's, that, it's kind of criminal. The unpaid internship thing is, is basically criminal. And if you look at it, I mean, I did some work with uh, Clark Atlanta and you know, when I was running ATDC at Georgia Tech and I was spending time at Clark Atlanta and Morehouse and Georgia State for that matter. You look at Georgia State, you look at Kennesaw State, you look at Clark Atlanta. Those kids can't even afford to do a paid internship. I mean, I talked to kids at Clark Atlanta that at night, you know, nights and weekends, they were bartending. They're like, hey, yeah, make it, I make 700 bucks a night cash. How am I going to do an internship? Like, I can't pay my bills. Even if you pay me 20 bucks an hour, I can't pay my bills, even though I should be investing in my career. I yeah. should, like, totally agree that it is the right career choice to do a professional internship. But I'm out making 700, 800 bucks a night serving drinks. It, like, it, how do you compete with that? And I don't have the choice to say, I can't, you know, I'm going to, like, suck it up and go invest in my career. That's not a, an option on my and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for that person's life. Yeah. It, it really is amazing how that has developed. Like, like I had, I had plenty of unpaid internships and I was fortunate enough to be able to do it. And it just wasn't even a thought of, well, I have no power. I'm 19 years old. So what do I do about this? Um, it, it really is one of the cruelest tricks that corporate America has ever been able to get away with. And now it just seems accepted. No. And I, and I think it's what, I, what I've been disappointed is in the startup community. Uh, it's become worse. I mean, the the level it, we talk about diversity and all that, but you talk about just people having a chance, right? Which I was fortunate. I figured it out, right? I worked three jobs through college and figured it out. But um, not everybody gets lucky, right? I mean, you got to work hard, but there's a little bit of luck involved. But now we live in a world, and especially in the Atlanta market, the startup community has now equaled white privilege. Um, if you look at folks hanging out at ATV, they're just hanging out. They're not worried. They're not stressed. They're, you know, because their family has money. So you now have this white privilege dynamic building, not diminished in this city. And none of them know how to write a line of fucking code. Well, that, that, that probably just makes it, <laughs> you know what? Uh, it, it, it makes it even easier for you to spot, I think, who is, uh, who's going to be yeah. good for Shadow Ventures and who's not. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. a lot, like I said, there's a lot of people playing startup. Well, that 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 has been as for look for for as many companies as have been birthed through that. That is one of the criticisms that it is a little bit of a frat house, um, mm-hmm. just post college for people Absolutely. who think they're playing technology. Absolutely, and they yeah. because they can, right? I mean, unfortunately, the kids that are going to grind it out and work hard. Um, I had somebody ask me the other day, like KP, why don't you have a diversity or whatever fund? And I was like, because I. I have shareholders. I, like, I have investors that I have to deliver on. And unfortunately, the only thesis I can deliver on of why to do a diversity fund is we would basically get better valuations because women and um, people of color don't have access to capital. So I can negotiate a better valuation would be the core of my thesis. And it would work, but it'd be kind of shitty. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's actually an interesting company that I had on a past show called Enrich Her, which is, um. Yeah, Roshana. Yeah. Yeah. Roshana and Tiara. So, you know, they're building a platform for, um, you know, minorities, women who cannot get access to the normal traditional capital markets channels to help fund their companies. And there's, as you have identified, a real need for that. Absolutely. 
the challenge is you got to go get big money. Yeah. Like, you know, a million here, two million. Like, you got to go get 50, 100. I, I recognize that. At a certain point, theirs will, will help some, but for to truly be impactful, to have the icons of, uh, you know, the new rock stars of entrepreneurship are yeah. probably not going to come from those small amounts of money. Right. And you have, I mean, you have to, in order to sustain, right, the, the risk cycles. Uh, we also have a dynamic right now. We have an entire generation that's never been through a down cycle. Which is pro- which is massively problematic around how they think and how they manage risk and how they believe risk. You know, um, 2006, I had 10 million dollars of loans capital called within a week that I had to replenish. I went, you know, I had to get to work and hustle and mm-hmm. raise 10 million dollars that was pulled when there was no capital. Right, so that that drives a certain behavior and a certain hustle that if you haven't been through. Yeah, you don't even know what to do next. Yeah, uh, you're you're absolutely right about that. Look, we could go on for a long time, yep. but we got to move on. KP, right. thank you for coming absolutely. on. If anyone wants to learn more about you, how do they do so? Uh, Shadow.vc. Okay, fantastic. All right, Chris, you've been waiting patiently. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Good morning. Okay, so I, I think that, and again, for for those listening, Chris uh, is the chief marketing officer for TopRight, and we're going to get into what TopRight does, but um, I want to talk a little bit about your background because you really seem to be kind of a um, I know normally you use the term like classically trained pianist, but you seem to be, if you look at your resume, a classically trained chief marketing officer. And I'm curious about how your experience with really big brands like Honey Baked Ham, um, like working with clients uh, like Coke and Conagra, um, how that has prepared you for everything that you're doing at TopRight. Well, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing is, being a consultant now and, and having classically trained experience, you have the opportunity to see different problems. And what you learn over the course of client engagements and company engagements is that everybody faces the, t- the same challenge. They're all trying to change behavior. They're either trying to get someone to do something differently, do more of what they're doing, stop doing what they're doing and, and move. So if I'm Coca-Cola or if I'm XYZ company that's just starting a, a new venture – 99% of the time, those companies, th- those consumers or those customers are already doing something. They're buying Pepsi because Coke doesn't exist. So how do I get them to change the way they think? How do I convince them to make a change, stop buying Pepsi and start buying Coke? A- and it's the same whether it's in B2B or B2C. And so, I, you know, we talked a little bit with KP about the personality that drives what you do every day. Um, and, and I'm always curious about those who are in marketing. Have, have you had interest in psychology and persuasion? Like, what what is it that there's – because there is something deeper that – like, if, if you are privileged enough to have a job that is more than just a job, there's something inside of you that drives you to do what you do that you get um, intellectual satisfaction out of that. And so I'm curious to dig into that. Yeah, you know, KP talk, talked about a few things that really resonated with me. We're all about exploring what's possible, what's out, what, what's, what's available to, to do. We're, we're ex- always looking to try and understand more deeply the, con- the consumer psyche. So anthropology, psychology, uh, human behavior all drives how we think about marketing. So yeah, I, I, ironically enough, I was a psychology major my first semester of college. And, got it, got it uh, right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I hated all the reading. I fell asleep half the time in the library and said, you know, there's got to be something different. Now, that wasn't being lazy KP. That was just me recognizing that I, I, I didn't enjoy reading tomes <laughs> about Nietzsche and, and what have you. Uh, but, but there is a psychology to marketing. It's not just about shilling products. It's really understanding an unmet need. 
and, and figuring out how to fill it better than anyone else. And wh- so, okay, let, let's, let's, before we get too far down this rabbit hole, let's talk about what TopRight does and then discuss that within the framework of TopRight. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, you know, we're a marketing consulting firm and we're really interested in focusing on three areas. One is simplification of the story that a company has. So, why do they exist? What role do they play in the ecosystem? How they create value? So really simplifying that for our clients, then clarifying their strategies. How are they going to take that story and translate it into messaging that resonates with consumers, that changes their behavior? And then systems, which is the people, the processes, and the technology to actually execute those strategies. So we'll work with clients that some will call us and they'll say, you know, we have a, we've been in the, the market for a thousand years and now the technology has changed the way the market exists and we now have no real reason for being. And they'll say, can you help us transform our story? Or we'll have new ventures who will say, we're entering into a market where there are already two or three competitors. How do we find our place in that so that we're not just saying we're just like company A, but, but cheaper, which is only sustainable for as long as till company A decides to lower their price? So, um, so you know, we're constantly looking for ways to help people grow. I mean, we're really in the growth business. Um, and, and and one thing that you tout a lot in a lot of your literature is transformation. This is not just growth, but transformation. Yeah, it, it's um, it's really changing the way they think about their business, the way they market their business. Yeah, I would say ninety nine percent of the clients that that I deal with. We'll say, well, this is what we do. This is what we're all about. This is what, what we're all about, what we do. And I'll say, nobody cares what you do. No one cares what you do. I don't care if you're Coke or Pepsi or Dow Chemical or, or you know, the, the local company down the street. What they care about is what they get from what you do because everybody's very self-serving, again, whether you're a business or a consumer. And so we transform them by shifting the way they talk and we ask them to begin to talk about themselves and we, we use research to really get at the root of why they exist and the value that they create in the marketplace that makes them distinct and make them preferred. Why is that? And, and look, this is something that anyone who's read, you know, Simon Sinek's books understands that, um, that why is powerful. And of course, anyone who has read, you know, your founder Dave Sutton book understands that as well. But what is it about the way that humans think and make decisions that that why is so impactful? Well, because I, I think in, in nature, humans are, are very self-serving. They're looking to satisfy themselves. They want, they want to know what's in it for me first. Now, people will talk a, a great game about being philanthropic and what have you, but when it comes to basic needs, there's something that's, that's in it for them, whether it's a, a functional benefit, whether it's an emotional benefit. You know, you think about some of the things that you buy at the grocery store. You know, people, you, you look at market share, people buy Philadelphia brand cream cheese. Why? Because it's better than the generic cream cheese. It's cream cheese. It's made the same. It's a product. But people have some emotional connection to Philadelphia brand cream cheese. I trust that it's going to allow me to make a better cheesecake or it's going to allow me to do that. So there's this, this psychological need. Consumers want that feeling, either a functional value or a, or a psychological value. What was, um, and, and I asked this of, and we talked a little bit about it with, uh, Roxana, um, 
any sort of any, any any services company, and obviously you both have technology built into your services, but any services company, I always wonder, and not in an offensive way, but why do you exist? Why can an organization not do what you can do internally with their talent? And so, um, I, I you know, I, it, it of course gets to why you're special and why you do what you do. Um, yeah, it's, there are a couple of reasons. I think. Uh, I think one is. I think when you're within an organization, you, you get a little bit of groupthink. You get blinders because you know what actually exists in the company and you create paradigms and, and, and barriers that do exist or don't exist. And you don't have the ability to think more broadly and outside of what you live every day. So I think that that's part of it is people you – know, we have – We've had client engagements uh, in the past where you're there for two or three or four years and we have to move people off because they – we call it going native because they've been at the client for so long that they they start to think like the client and they create and, and construct these barriers. Um, I think the second is everyone at TopRight has a plethora of great experience at different businesses. And so when you're able to go to a client and sit down and say, you know, Kraft Foods had a very similar problem. Let me explain to you the process that we went through to fix that at Kraft Foods or at, at Alcoa. And it, it helps to settle people because they understand you've seen that problem. It may not be in their industry. But having an understanding, clients having an understanding that you've seen something like that and you've fixed it for somebody else, there's comfort in that. Going native, I love that. It's almost like a uh, a little bit more of a friendly type of Stockholm syndrome, where you start to, you know, I- identify enough with uh, your, your your captors, right? Yeah. No. Ironically <laughs> enough, it it happens. You yeah. know, you, someone's there for two or three years, and you'll have a you'll have a client review meeting, and they'll start to say, "Well, there's there's no way that that can happen. There's no way that we can do that. They have these things," and 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 you say, "Time out. Do they have those things?" Really, did you, would you have thought that three years ago? Yeah. And you really have to force them to go back or challenge them and say you, – you end up treating them like a client. And at that point, when your people become like the client, it, it's time to, to they, find they, – They've been bitten by the zombie. They need to be quarantined. Perfect. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, well, well, so that, that kind of goes into your – you know how, how you acquire talent because you need someone, it would seem – who is has the entrepreneurial drive to jump from project to project, mm-hmm. but also the corporate demeanor and experience to be able to embed themselves within that team. Yeah, it's it's a you know, consulting. I think as a whole is tough to get into straight out of college, and you know, people do it at McKinsey, Bain, and BCG. The way you're successful there is you're super analytical, and you just are very passionate, and you're willing to learn, and you're willing to pay your dues and sit and listen. And the value that you bring is changing colors on PowerPoint presentations and taking notes. Because so much of the consulting business is about building trust, and I think Roxana would would agree, if they don't trust you, they're not going to hire you. And it's hard when you're 23 or 24 years old to be able to have that top-level conversation where you don't have stories to tell, you don't have battle scars to share, you don't have um, the experience to be able to bring to bear. And so what we do is we tend to look for people who are rock star marketers um, and who are able to step in and bring thoughtware. You know, it may be I was the assistant product manager on Diet Coke at Coca-Cola Company, which means you're fairly low on the totem pole, but I'm the one who introduced the, you know, NASCAR promotion and we did this. And so you take them and you say, 
I now have somebody who has great experience building a promotion, working with partners. And so you begin to look at their skills. What skills do they have? Mm-hmm. And then you bring them in and you leverage those skills while giving them exposure to a different set of skills. So you, you've been with TopRight for maybe a year and a half or so? About a year and a half. But okay. I, but the CEO, Dave Sutton, and I go back 16 years. He hired me, brought me to Atlanta 16 years ago f- to work for the Zeman Group. Uh, Sergio Zeman was the chief marketing officer at Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. started a consulting firm. So Dave and I have known each other for a long time, which is why I'm back at TopRight. Well, and, and so that's that's sort of what I wanted to get at. So what? So obviously you and Dave have a longstanding personal relationship, but what was it about the organization that he was building that drew you to it at this point? You know, in, in consulting, especially in marketing consulting, everyone is focused on trying to help companies grow. And I think you know, we're all about bringing simplicity, clarity, and alignment. And when I sat down with Dave and he talked about how he wanted to do it, it was actually very simple, very clear, and it was aligned with how I think about growing companies and, and, and marketing. And so if you're walking your walk and you're talking your talk, if you actually can live those values as a firm, you know that there's that, that it's not just a shtick that, that people are, are using to try and win business. Well, that and, and then of course that speaks a lot for um, not just his talent, but also his integrity in the organization that is being built. Um, I'm, I'm curious what we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the segment, but you know, you you came from a large brand, you came from working with very large, and obviously you still have large clients, but you are within a little <laughs> bit more of a um, you know growing entrepreneurial type organization, and I'm curious about. Is it a mindset shift? Is it really that big of a change? What are you bringing from your past experience to kind of help grow top right? Yeah, I guess a couple of things. One is a breadth of experience working on both big and small brands. Um, you know, working at, at, uh, at Kraft Foods, obviously you learn discipline and rigor and process and all of those things that come with companies that invest a tremendous amount of money, uh, in training. But then working at, at a company like Next Generation Network, which was a digital media startup company, where when you wanted to make a decision at Kraft Foods, you wrote a deck, and it was a 40-page deck, and you took it to your boss, who took it to their boss, who took it to their boss. And pretty soon after someone, you know, every one of them had fine-sanded it, and it finally got to the person who made a decision, it looked nothing like what you started with, but everybody had put their fingerprints on it. At a company like Next Generation Network, you walk to the office next door, you say, this is what I want to do. They say, okay, what is it going to do for us? And you spell it out, and you go. And so being able to have that experience both in a entrepreneurial environment where you make decisions and go, but also in a process-driven organization where you deal with big bureaucracies, I think it prepares me to deal with the breadth of clients that we have because we do have big clients, but we also have small clients. We have clients who have technologies that will say, we'll do consulting for you for a piece of the business because we think you have an idea mm-hmm. that um, that we think has has real market potential. And we'll take a piece of the we'll take a piece of the business because we believe so strongly in it that um, we think we can help you make us a lot of money. Well, and and, and that uh, that that speaks volumes to the type of organizations that you're getting involved with because that's not just a client assignment. At the end of the day, anyone can do that. That is, you have a real stake in building this organization to um, you know the best that it can be. Yeah, it's it's true, and and we take that approach with all of our clients. You know, we're not foolish enough to say. As part of our pay, we're going to take stock from <laughs> right. clients that we know the work we're doing isn't going to be the thing that swings the stock price uh, tremendously. 
But we all we look at every one of our clients as if it were our own business. We treat it as if it were our own. I look at it no differently than I did when I was the CMO at Honey Baked Ham. It's this is my business. I have a passion for this. I'm here for this. And so when I walk into a client's office, I have a passion for growth. One, because it serves the client well, and, and in, in all candor, it serves me well, too, because they'll keep me around. They'll continue to, to compensate us. Well, that's that's the best job security, right? It, it, great work is always the best Absolutely. job security. Um, you, you work with a lot of different types of industries, anything from nonprofits to healthcare to oil and technology, and it would seem to me that to, in order to do that, you have to have a process that is generally repeatable and somewhat industry agnostic. Uh, we do. And it's the, th- the 3S playbook I talked about earlier. It's the story, the strategy, and the systems. You have to have a real curiosity, though, to be a consultant. Because to go and have a client and you're working on emulsifiers, and then you're shifting from that to working on you know a digital media platform, being able to really get excited about emulsifiers and the market for emulsifiers, it's, you know, you have to be curious. You have to want to learn, but you want to understand at the end of the day, whoever is buying those emulsifiers for the products that they're making, they're making those products to satisfy a need. What you do in that small segment has to help them to fulfill that need. That's how they, they command a premium. So you have to have the curiosity. But the process and the structure, the construct of saying, you know, you may have the best email marketing campaign in the world. You may, you know, Roxana may be killing it for you uh, in terms of execution. But if you don't have a story that resonates, you're just sending emails that wind up in, in the dumpster bin. Right. Because I don't know why I care when I get an email from ABC company. I mean, we all trash 90% of the email that we get. Why? Because they don't speak to what I need. They're not connected to me in any way, shape, or form. I didn't ask for them. But if I get an email from somebody who that's obscure and they know that I had done something previously and they're able to tailor that in a way that speaks to my need, they understand how to translate their story for me. right? And, and I think that's, that's probably what Roxana does um, with, with the bulk of her business. Oh, I, I think that curiosity – gets you a long way um i think if you look if you look at the commonality of what the four of us around this table do um whether it's from a client facing perspective um you know a portfolio company perspective it's you have to be curious about what other people and other businesses do because otherwise what is the point of even doing our jobs if you if you if you don't care and there's not something in your mind that has to know about that thing that um, you just never knew existed or that unsexy product that um, is impacting a large portion of the population, I mean, you you can't do any of what the four of us do. Agreed. Agreed. You know, it's a challenge. It's and it's interesting listening to to both KP and Roxana talk. You know, I, top right sits sort of between the two of them as an organization where, where KP would have a venture and he might have a technology that is revolutionary. You know, I think where we would sit is in between saying, okay, now that you have this technology, how do we translate the technology into a story that resonates with the most number of people? We'd build that story. We'd build the strategies and we'd say, okay, here's kind of how we think about pushing that, the, the execution of the strategy out. And we would look to someone like Roxana to, to help us make it better. So how do we build the story and then how do we 
execute the story. You you have tied it all together very well. Um, so if if anyone listening wants to learn more about TopRight, they can read Dave's book, which is called Marketing Interrupted. Um, in addition, if they want to contact you or learn more on the internet, how would they do that? Uh, they can contact me uh, directly on email at Weissman, that's W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N, at TopRightPartners.com, or you can look at our website at TopRightPartners.com. Fantastic. All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining, and thank you for listening to another episode of Tech Talk.